Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Denise Walsh, an Associate Professor of Politics and Women, Gender, and Sexuality at the College and Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia. Her research investigates how democracies can be made more inclusive and just. Walsh's current book, Culture and Women's Rights Don't Clash, focuses on the so-called burqa ban in France, the legalization of polygyny in South Africa, and the marrying out rule for indigenous women in Canada. In this podcast, Professor Walsh will talk with us about her research and teachings on the topic of identity politics. So thank you, Professor Walsh, for speaking with me today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to have the chance to talk about a little bit about my research as well as uh, what we do in the classroom here. Great. Thank you. So first, what is the identity and identity politics all about? And why is identity important for politics? And, you know, why is it so prevalent today, do you think? Yeah. I'm, so when most people talk about identity, I think they probably would do something like, you know, go inwards. They might even close their eyes and think about like, who am I? What is my true self? And then what should I do, uh, given that I've kind of figured this out? And that's not what the identity and identity politics is all about. So instead about instead of going inward, it's actually about collective solidarity. So it's about a sense of connection with others and the belief about the group and its place in society. So identity politics is about organizing around the experience of a group. And some of the classic examples of identity politics in the United States are, of course, the civil rights movement that happened in the 1960s, and then the women's rights movement that followed after that in the 1970s. And both of these movements were really fired by a desire to challenge and end discrimination. So, for instance, in the civil rights movement, of course, to end segregation and Jim Crow laws in the South. And I think that identity politics are important for politics simply because this is about a collective action, right? It's a public endeavor to change social norms and values, as well as to open up economic and political opportunities for people that otherwise might have been closed. And it's prevalent today, of course, because so many groups around the world are discriminated against. So we might think about Muslims today in India, for instance, or gay men in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, or indigenous peoples in Canada and the U.S. So as long as there's discrimination based on a characteristic shared by a group of people, there's going to be an identity politics. And in an era of polarization where some people wish to return to an idealized past, where some forms of this discrimination could be acceptable again, we're going to see a heightened emphasis on identity politics from all quarters. Thank you for that context. That's interesting. So where do identities come from? 
Yeah. So again, most people think that our identities are either inside of us or even I think more prominently that they're written onto our bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was born white. I have Irish Polish heritage, which means, of course, that I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and I had the body parts usually associated with those of a woman. And that seems pretty natural to most people. I mean, just look at me. Right. Uh, But what I think is important is that I was also born with blue eyes. And that doesn't seem to matter much for my opportunities in life, but my skin color sure does. And the fact that most people perceive me and I self-identify as a woman, that also shapes my opportunities in life. So identities are about meaning making. They are not who we were born to be, but about the meaning that society makes of us. And Simone de Beauvoir has this kind of classic, very pithy phrase that captures this. And she says, one is not born, but becomes a woman. So we have a sense here that identities are produced, and they're produced often very deliberately by institutions, including bureaucrats or educators like me, religious leaders, uh, social media, the conventional media, um, by each one of us in our interactions with one another and the stories we tell about our lives and the people that we know. So for instance, we can I think once we start to understand that identities are produced, then we can begin to understand why, say, books and libraries have become controversial recently, or why a census can be deeply politicized, and why people care about how different groups are represented in the media. Because all of these things tell a particular story about various groups and their entitlement to rights and responsibilities in the polity. So again, it's really important to realize that identities can be very deliberately crafted to ensure that some groups of people have more opportunities and power than other groups. And of course, uh, what the classic example in the United States is race. Race, though, of course, when racialization occurs all over the world. So often in my classes, I teach about how a race is actually defined and entangled with gender and class and ethnicity and a variety of colonial projects all around the world. I was recently teaching about um, the Dutch in Indonesia and how when they finally uh, allowed women, white women from the Dutch a nation to come to the colony, there's this ratcheting up of racial boundaries. Uh, There's a desire for racial purity and to control women in the spaces in which they can and cannot uh, exist in, in order to, of course, preserve the type of racial purity given that these women are going to have babies, right? And there's also this kind of concern with cultural degeneration, that somehow if white people are exposed too often to the native peoples, then white people will go native, you know, quote unquote, go native. So there's all these very strange ideas circulating uh, in the colonial environment in order to uh, produce the effect that people actually believe their skin color matters and that it somehow makes them either better or worse than others. So that's what I mean by identities are produced and can be produced in a very deliberate way. Interesting. Yeah, it's very important for us to then uh, recognize when identities are sort of being used in different contexts and in different ways. And we need to critically think about that as we're as we're sort of looking at how things are being uh, contextualized and unfolded. So thank exactly. you. Exactly. 
I think what you know, scholars have spent decades studying this stuff, trying to unravel, say, like, how did the Hutu and Tutsi get constructed as, you know, polarized identity groups in Rwanda that leads to the genocide, right? So there's a desire to figure out how this stuff is made so that we can unmake it, uh, which I think, you know, in the case of Rwanda is extraordinarily important. And so it's empowering, but it's also uh, very humbling to realize, you know, how entangled and these different identities are and how much work is being done on us and that we do on each other and ourselves in order to reproduce them. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. So in the political context, you know, why do identity groups sort of mobilize and and then what can they really, what can they achieve? Yeah. So obviously identity groups mobilize to challenge all these forms of discrimination, right? Oppression, exploitation, domination, et cetera. So many groups want to actually assert, look, I'm fully human. And there's a lot of just incredibly moving and beautiful stories by people claiming that they are human, right? And that they're valuable and that discrimination against them should end. And this kind of, these kinds of proclamations or stories are uh, really, uh, students love them. They eat them up, you know, because it, it's so compelling. And a lot of this happens through um, consciousness raising. And so there's this idea that, you know, it's not just this problem that I'm facing in the world isn't just about me. It's not something that I'm doing that's wrong. This is actually a problem that is experienced by other people who are like me in some way. Right. And so once individuals start to share these kinds of experiences and realize that it's not an individual problem, then collective action can happen. And then, you know, we see groups making all kinds of demands, demands for full citizenship, for equal rights, for respect. Indigenous peoples often demand political autonomy, so they don't want to belong. They actually want to have their own group. Right. Uh, but the aim is always to change the status quo. And so that's why it's political. Right. Whenever you want to change the way things are, you're going to run up against people who are very happy with the way things are often because it serves them. So, of course, um, one of the things we know from history is that identity politics and groups can be very successful. So we see, for example, the United States, the end of Jim Crow and legal segregation in the South. And that's always very inspirational to students and to other people who would like to see the world become a better place. Uh, at the same time, we know that there's also limits, right? Uh, so de facto segregation still happens in the United States all over the country. Um, currently, I think many people would just say that we're experiencing a backlash, like new voter laws in the country that are making it harder for Black citizens to vote. And so that suggests that, you know, it, identity politics is an ongoing process, that there's a struggle and that there, you know, there's not just a, a, a limitless progress, but there can also be these kinds of reversals. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, what are some of the outcomes of identity politics for political representation? Yeah, so I, this is a really fun thing to talk about because there's actually been some really dramatic changes in the world. So I presume that most of your listeners, you know, they know about Barack Obama, of course, and Kamala Harris. But there's been an incredible amount of changes in women's representation around the world today. And I think it's really nothing short of stunning. So I bet that most of your listeners can't name the top five countries in the world with the highest proportion of women politicians in their national parliaments. So you know, this would be like akin to our Congress, right? So the top five, and you can Google this uh, if you type in I 
P-U, women's representation. It will actually take you to the site that compiles this kind of data. And the absolute first country on the list is Rwanda with 61.3% women. So a clear majority of women in the National Assembly. Then Cuba with 55.7%. Then Nicaragua with 53.9%. Mexico with 50.4%. And Andorra with 50%. 50%. So when I do this in my classes, my students kind of all look at me very confused. I sometimes have them go to this website, you know, and kind of play around with it. It uh, The website actually has 184 or so spots. And of course, I always ask the students, well, see if you can find the U.S. And they scroll and they scroll and they scroll. And the United States comes in at number 71, tied with Iraq. So then the question is, how is this possible, right? And the answer is one word, and it's very simple, and that is quotas. So over 130 countries have quotas for women in the world today. So why? Like, how did this happen? And what's going on? Because quotas tend to have a very bad name in the United States. So how does one explain this? So in the 1990s, there was the zenith, really, of the international women's rights movement. And it it was at that moment in 1995 that uh, the idea that women's rights are human rights went mainstream. So while it might seem a little bit strange today, until then, most people didn't really think that women's rights needed to be articulated in a way separate from uh, regular human rights because women were just human and why did they need any kind of special rights at all? Um, And that this was actually divisive and, you know, kind of about specialized interests and that kind of thing. But in the international arena, a lot of women's non-governmental organizations and human rights groups really pushed for and changed those ideas. And so we see a lot of treaties and declarations um, at the international level are um, elaborating a variety of women's rights. So not just civil and political rights, but also economic and social rights and environmental rights, uh, reproductive justice, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we get all of these uh, concerns and a lot of momentum about advancing women's rights. And at the same time, in the 1990s, we also get a lot of countries transitioning to democracy. So very different from the current environment. And we also see a lot of end to bloody conflicts, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America, we see a lot of negotiations. And so there's all these international specialists now who know things about constitution writing and electoral systems. And they're also armed with all of these treaties and ideas about women's rights. And so the local women's movements on the ground in these countries connect with these some of these international actors. And we see a lot of countries adopting quotas. And that's been happening since then. In some cases, the United States has actually required countries like Iraq uh, to adopt quotas. So we see this kind of, you know, mixed um, bag in terms of, you know, sometimes countries self-select in and other times there seems to be a lot of external pressure. In any case, we see a a large number of countries adopting quotas. And the one thing we know for sure is that quotas work. That is, if they are implemented, they do get women into politics. So then the question is, okay, so what good is that? Well, we see uh, role model effects, right? Um, Women start to see other women um, in politics, and they think maybe they can be leaders too. This is, of course, really important for young women and girls. We see uh, more women getting interested in politics. Uh, We see the women who are 
in these national assemblies actually discussing issues that are typically of interest and associated with women, so health and education, for instance. And those all seem like important and good things. Um, not all of these um, efforts lead to changes in laws, however, and there's a, a lot of reasons for that. One is um, not all women are feminists who want to advance the sign of, you know, kind of women's agenda. Um, gender, as we know, is not the ticket to power in politics, <laughs> right? Uh, parties uh, may not prioritize these issues, and they have a big say in many countries and what, what politicians can do. And voters may not prioritize, prioritize these issues either. And then um, finally, I think we also have to reflect on the fact that quotas bring elite women into power. But th what does this mean for actual ordinary women on the ground, right? So, like, you know, what can they do uh, in terms of political action that can actually change their lives? That's still left uh, for us to think about. So quotas have some important um, advantages and they also have uh, limitations, which is, of course, what politics is all about. Interesting. Um, I, you know, I would not have picked those five countries, for sure. <laughs> Um, so I will look that up and think about that for sure. And I appreciate that uh, conversation about the quotas. I wonder, you know, I, I as a woman, I, I totally agree a quota for gender uh, is important. Are there other quotas that are uh, other yeah. identity groups that are included in these kinds of quotas? You know, that's actually a great question. So there's been some research done on different types of quotas. And one of the things that we see is that indigenous groups, for instance, will often get reserved seats as a group, while women get quotas. And there's um, logical reasons for that. But as you can imagine, there's also a problem because some indigenous peoples are women. <laughs> and so what happens, right, is, you know, you tend to get these elite women who are getting served by the quotas and then these reserved seats for indigenous people, say, and then you tend to see mostly, um, you know, religious, I mean, sorry, indigenous leaders who are men. And then the women who are at the intersection, indigenous women seem to get lost in, in this kind of a shuffle. And this is going back to thinking about how are various identities constructed in ways that are, you know, overlapping. And then how do we in various ways ignore those overlaps or what you know many people talk about today as the intersection right so when we think about intersectional feminism we're thinking about groups that have become invisible because they are uh, you know affected by more than one system of oppression at a time so as usual you know we, we we figure out that there is a problem and then it takes a while for the political system to kind of figure out how to resolve some of these issues uh, but that's definitely been a research agenda among a number of scholars and politics and gender over the past and gender over the past 10 years. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, and finally, you've talked a little bit about this, but how do you see identity politics impact public policy? I mean, who it, it, it matters who's in the room uh, making <laughs> decisions. Uh, so uh, how do you see identity politics impact public policy? Yeah, that's a great question. I like what you said about how it matters who's in the room. And one of the things that I've argued in my research is that, you know, that's about access, about being able to be present. But then you you also need the capacity, right, to speak up. And as we all know, it, that can be very intimidating if you're the only one of X in the room, or even if you're not, but there is just a sense that you're not supposed to speak or, you know, you shouldn't speak about things that disrupt the status quo, right? So it's about, you know, being in the room or having that access and then having that voice and then also you know, this capacity for contestation. And, and then 
we can really judge whether, you know, this, the um, process is open and inclusive by whether sometimes those who have rarely had access, voice or capacity for contestation in the past and now sometimes actually win. Right. So all of those things need to come together so that kind of, you know, getting people in the room is just the first of a um, of one of many steps. And we also have to think about like what kinds of you know people. Right. Is it going to be ordinary women or elite women? Are they going to be feminist or non-feminist, et cetera? So there's just many complications. And thinking about getting people in the room is really just the first step. But let's say that we're thinking about that. Right. Um, so we know that collective action really does help to make public policy. And one of the things that I learned in my research in Poland, uh, Chile and South Africa is that I found that women's um, sort of collective action could happen in many places. It didn't just have to happen in the streets. And this goes back to your comment about being in the room. So what rooms really matter? Well, they can be any room, as I suppose is what I would say, you know, because politics is everywhere. So the workplace, right, um, it's especially important, I think, in the media, in the newsroom, right? That That's a space for collective action. Uh, it can be in a political party. It can be in, you know, civil society is usually thought of as kind of this virtuous space, right, of human rights activists. But human rights activists are people. And of course, there's going to be all kinds of, you know, racial and patriarchal issues within organizations and civil society as well, right? So it, it's really important for any identity group to organize within these spaces. And that's um, something that I've certainly experienced here at UVA. So um, I joke, this is not quite true, but it's almost true that there were more Davids in the political science department at one point than women. Right. So there's a way in which, you know, women just the few women who were in the department just kind of looked at each other and realized, like, so we have something in common here and we need to get together and talk about it and think about what we can do to make things better. Right. And um, what my research, I, what I found in my research is that when women organize within these spaces, they can begin to change the policies in these sites where they live their lives, right? So we changed the hiring policies in the Department of Politics. We created committees to deal with gender and diversity issues, for example. And the department got money from the dean's office to do some act action you know, with graduate students to just create a better, more open climate, right? So all of these things are important and they really do improve people's lives. But beyond that, when what happened is, uh, in, so in my research, as well as in my own department, is that powerful people and organizations kind of own, begin to own these issues, right? So my department chair starts going around talking about how important gender and diversity is, right? You know, and very powerful trade unions, for example, in South Africa began saying you know, violence against women is a problem, this kind of stuff, right? So then when you have really powerful institutions, you know, out there in the public, uh, and, you know, just saying like these issues matter and policies should change, right? Then that kind of, that creates an important momentum to advance uh, I think changes in public policy. So for me, the the lesson from all of that is that you know identity politics is everywhere, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Including your office at work, and even small changes can actually lead to big changes. And the key is to act where you are, to not um, turn inward and think that it's you're the problem, but instead to act, to talk to other people, to share your experiences, right? To be uh, willing to encourage other people to engage in consciousness raising 
and to be willing to stick your neck out on the line to take collective action to make you know the world or you know your world whatever that space is better for the people who come after you and i think that that's incredibly rewarding and exciting work uh, but it's definitely work and it's always ongoing great well, thank you so much, Professor Walsh, for sharing this information about your research and teaching. I can see why you can spend an entire semester uh, talking about this <laughs> and really deep diving with your students. And, um, you know, it's interesting to think about this from our own perspective as voters, but also to inform how we view and sort of contextualize and analyze public policy ourselves. So mm -hmm. thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends and families. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu backslash learn. You can also find our podcasts on the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.